Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. This episode is brought to you by mychopchop.ca. If you love to cook and eat delicious African food, MyChopChop delivers African groceries right to your door. MyChopChop Canada is the number one and largest online African grocer that delivers African groceries to its customers, and they deliver Canada-wide as well as to the United States. They also offer next-day delivery to some select cities. Take $10 off your first order by using the code MADETOLEAD on mychopchop.ca. That's M-Y-C-H-O-P-C-H-O-P dot C-A. Okay, uh, my guest today is Hallie Farah. So Hallie is is currently uh, the City of Toronto Senior HR Consultant leading the Diversity Recruitment uh, and Next Generation Programs. Prior to joining the City of Toronto, Hallie worked at uh, BMO, which is a financial institution here in Canada, uh, as the advisor for the Enterprise Diversity Talent Acquisition Strategies. Uh, and she was responsible for managing key initiatives and programs within Diversity Talent Acquisition Strategies uh, a team within the team. Uh, and she also helped on developing enterprise wide strategies and attracting and acquiring diverse talent to BMO. Outside her corporate role, Hallie has demonstrated her passion and leadership in community engagement, youth development, um, uh, specifically, uh, in her advocacy, both on and off Bay Street, uh, by creating opportunities to attract, source and establish an environment for diverse talent to belong and thrive. Hallie dedicates her time in many ways that strengthens and reveals her sincerity and passion as a community leader and youth advocate. Uh, she also holds a bachelor's degree from McMaster University and a postgrad in human resources from George Brown College. So thank you, Hallie, for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Aziz. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. So uh, we just want to get started. Uh, let, let's talk about your background, um, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, um, and what life was like for you, uh, you know, throughout high school, university, uh, and college as well, uh, before you got into your work, uh, into your career, um, and also how you even got into uh, your, your career and ended up where you are right now. Well, okay. So... I am ethnically Somali, but I am from Nairobi, Kenya. Um, I came here when I was about nine or 10 years old. I came to Canada with um, my family, my mother and my siblings. We came as, um, we were sponsored by a family member. So my mom was at that time had all seven of us. So you can imagine the oldest of us at the time was 10. My older brother, we're all just a year apart. Also, my mom was pregnant for literally seven years straight, came here with um, all of us um, and started off my life here in grade four. Initially, when we first came, we lived in Toronto, um, West End Toronto. Those of those of you who are from Toronto know that Toronto West End, specifically Etobicoke, is 
um, there's, there's a huge Somali community there. So, of course, as Africans, what we do is we go where the rest of us are when we first come to the country. So we went there. Um, very quickly, though, my mom saw that that was probably not the best place for us to grow up um, or for her to raise us as a single mother. She had four boys at the time. Mm. And at that time, you know, she kind of understood the dynamic of what it means to be a black person in, 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 in the West, specifically to be a young black male. So she did what she thought at the time was the best for us. She packed us all up um, and we went to the suburbs of Hamilton. So I'm technically from Hamilton. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, went to middle school, high school, university, all of that in Hamilton. My mom took us from a majority Somali environment to the whitest community you can think of in Hamilton, <laughs> Ontario. We were not only the black, the only black family on our street, but we were very visible. I mean, those of you who know Somali, Somali people, you can, you know, the, this, there's a certain dress code that we have, specifically right. our women, right? Being Muslim women. So my mom came into this community of very, you know, a lot, a lot of the more old Italian and, and Portuguese families. And then there's this Somali family with seven children and this mother who's just like, is wearing this extremely colorful um, attire. And just, it was, I think for her, it was such a hard transition, but she did her best to kind of shield us from, from that. Growing up, um, I w- I'm the oldest uh, daughter. So I'm the second oldest, but I'm the eldest daughter. Okay. And with that comes a whole array of responsibilities, right? Um, you become automatically, you become a second mother. So I'm here raising the three little, the younger ones, because they were significantly like about five years, seven years, five to seven years younger than me. So I had to like step up really quickly in my life. And I had a huge burden of responsibility in my shoulder because my mom at the time was working two jobs and on her free time, she would go to school to, you know, to learn the language, to kind of get herself assimilated. And I remember this vividly. She would like, she couldn't afford a babysitter. So coming to Canada, when we were back in Kenya, we, we had, we had a pretty good life, but coming to Canada, it was like, it was like somebody just took the carpet right under your feet, right? Like we came and it was just like a complete shock and we had to really literally start from the bottom. And I remember at the time when we were younger, when my mom was doing all of these things, she couldn't afford a babysitter. So we kind of raised ourselves. And when she, the only time that she wasn't working and she will take us everywhere. She'll take us to school. She'll take us everywhere. Like you, you can imagine we used to have little strings on our, on our wrist, like she'll tie little strings on her wrist and she'll just kind of drag us around the stores, drag us. Every- and people, I remember younger, they just used to stare. I thought it was normal, yeah. right? Cause I, I know other Somali families who have a lot of kids and I just thought it was like a normal thing, but yeah, that, that, that's how you don't lose them. You keep track of all yeah, your kids. Yeah. You with- just like, you're like, you <laughs> put them on a little string and you're like, let's go. And it's just, you're forced in that situation. You're forced to grow up so quickly. Right. Um, but I vividly remember the stairs and I remember, you know, feeling that we were a little bit different. Right. right? Um, and I went to, but, I, but the, my, my mom did a very good job in making us like, you know, when we came home, like building our self-esteem and telling us where we're from, telling us about, you know, our, our, our heritage, our culture, and like kind of making us like 
not doubt our identity because it's so easy as a young black person in, in, in the West when you're that young to try to fit into different situations. You know, when I'm, when I'm in school, I'm looked at, there was like, we, my family was literally 60% of the black population in the school because there's seven of us we all went to the same school. So it was like, it was, it, it was like, we were like 60%. So like everybody knew my family, everybody knew, you know, like we were very visible. Yeah. So when you're in school, you're, there's expectation, you know, especially when you're in school with a bunch of Caucasians, right? Like they will look at you as the black kid and there's this expectation to act quote unquote black mm. in, in the Western context, right? And in that time in the nineties, you know, hip hop and all of that was happening. So here we are trying to mold ourselves into what we think it's, is, you know, the black experience. Like if, if I'm going to, if I go to school, I, I have to act a certain way so that I can fit into this certain box that they think I fit into. When we come home, there's a certain like expectation. Like when we came home, my mom did a very good job of making sure that we spoke our language at home, that we kept our culture. So you come home, then you're all of a sudden a Somali kid and you're speaking Somali and you're making sure that you're paying five times a day and all of that. So I had a really interesting um, time growing up trying to always fit into these different boxes, which I thought I needed to put be in to kind of feel that, you know, to, to gain that acceptance. Right. And did you, did you find that um, that was mentally exhausting sometimes because you're, you've got these two personas, you know, the, you're the, the person that you are at home around your culture and then the person that you are outside of the home, um, trying to navigate a new environment, a new country, a new culture, and, you know, even a new education system. How did, mm-hmm. how did, how did that, how was that for you, uh, from a mental health perspective and just even, um, even physically? Cause it, it can be very exhausting, uh, switching identities. I think when we're younger, when I was younger, like I didn't have, I think the capacity to understand the impact that that would have on my mental health. Right. right. It was just the thing that you do. Um, come, coming to, I came here, I think I started when I grade four, or grade five, when I first came here and the education system in Nairobi is totally different than the mm-hmm. education system here. Yeah. So I came here and they see these Somali kids that came from quote unquote Africa. And there's this, preconceived notion of what we know, what we don't know. So automatically I was, I remember we were put into ESL. I come from a British school system in Nairobi. Right. I spoke English just fine. <laughs> and I, and I, re- I recall going to school and thinking, what's wrong with these people? Like, am I, am I learning how to spell cat? Like what is happening? And I will come to school at home and I'm like, mom, they're teaching me how to spell cat at school. And I know how, and the teachers will not believe you. Right. But I think from a mental health perspective, I didn't have the capacity to understand the impact. And I thought it was normal. I thought it was normal to have these dual, I guess, person, not person, I don't say personality, but be in this, you know, identities. I thought it was like a normal thing. I did not see it as a, I thought that's, that's, I thought that was what I needed to do to kind of fit in and to kind of A, gain the acceptance from, from, from my peers and also to not disappoint my mother. So and like, it was just, I was always playing these roles, but to me at that time, mental health. And I didn't like, I didn't understand that. I didn't have the capacity to know the impact that it would have or had. Right. Right. That's, a, that's, that's very interesting. And so, you know, <laughs> you, you, you take all of this, you, 
you know, you get through high school, you go to university, um, you study psychology in university, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming out of university, how did you find the transition uh, from you know school life uh, to being a working professional? Really tough because when I first I when I was in high school I was a I was you know an honor roll student. Then I went to university. There was expectations specifically for my family that I was going to do a hard science. Like that I'm going to get into a you know be a doctor, or be a lawyer, or be an, something that you know typical African expectation of like you're going to do something. And I didn't. I I like the soft soft sciences, the social work, the social aspect of like the psychology you know, interacting with people. So I came, mm. I got a soft degree and then I came out thinking, I'm going to use my people skill. It wasn't, it wasn't that easy. Mm. And I remember for a few years, I would say three years after graduating from, from McMaster, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. And I decided to, you know, I was at the time, believe it or not, I was working as a pharmacy technician. Which is totally like my career is not a linear like progression. It was just like I took so many different routes to get to where I am today. But having worked as a pharmacy technician um, really is what helped me figure out what I wanted to do in life. At the time when I was doing when when I was working as a pharmacy, I was you know dispensing medications, and I was you know I did I did I did a course in pharmacology and all of that, which a lot of people don't know about me. But I became very quickly. I grew in that in that in that in that role, and I became the lead technician at Shoppers Drug Mart in Hamilton. And you know, I had the capacity to hire people, and I was doing those HR functions. And then I decided this is exactly what I wanted to do in life. But being a young woman of you know, I and mean, having the background that I have, I don't have a lot of connection. I don't have a network. Mm. You know, HR is such a niche space to get into, especially where I, what I wanted to do. So it was. It was really tough for me to kind of get into the to the industry and get the, to the career that I wanted to do. I, I initially started off doing agency recruitment, so I was doing a lot of sales, and I worked my way up into corporate HR. But that's a, that's a whole different story in itself. But it was it was a it was a very tough transition, just because not because I didn't know what I wanted. It's just because I didn't have the network in place to leverage. So, you know, you, you've, you've now discovered that HR is what you want to do. Um, coming from a psychology background um, and also learning about people, uh, even through your, your pharmacy technician role, how did you end up then uh, getting into the diversity and inclusion space, which is, which is sort of where you are right now, um, uh, particularly from, you know, from the, you know, looking at the background that you came from? It's a, it's a, it was a goal that I've always wanted to, um, I had and, and a goal that I've always wanted to accomplish. Getting to where I am was not, it was not as easy as I make it look like on, on LinkedIn, right? Of course, yeah. So when I, when I got into corporate HR, so I, I was working at a deco agency for a few years and then I got my first opportunity with, um, with Aon Hewitt in corporate HR. Okay. And then I was stuck doing, you know, I was a talent advisor, but I was stuck doing, you know, the talent acquisition piece, uh, piece of that, which was, what, which was what the role was initially, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Thank God that was a one-year contract. And I was really using that as an experience to get myself into the corporate world. Then I got into IBM. This is where I got my break. Mm-hmm. I got into an IBM um, and I had a management role. 
And my role at IBM at the time was I was managing their consulting by degree program. I don't know if you've heard of this program. And it's, it's a great program where IBM hires consultants um, that are, you know, new, new graduates into consultant roles. Okay. And I had the mandate to hire 80 consultants across the country in Canada. Wow. I made, I remember I made a conscious effort. Diversity was not on the plate at the time. It was like, Hallie, we want you to hire 80 consultants. And I had like buckets, like you hire 10 in Toronto, Alberta, whatever. Like I had, a, I had quotas to meet in every region in the country, but diversity was not in the plate. It was more skills and competencies. And I knew what I was looking for. And I had, you know, built a huge network of connect with, with, with the schools. But I took it upon myself to say, I am going to make sure that I hire young black um, specifically young black males into these roles because these are not sp- these are spaces that I did not see a lot of um, young people of, of color so those were goals that I gave myself and I remember I had a mandate to hire in Toronto I believe at the time was about 18 people in Toronto and I said I'm gonna I'm gonna give f- I'm gonna make sure I hire five young black men into IBM consulting um, roles. At the time, you get right out of university, they were getting 70K. That was a lot of money at the time. Mm. Um, and and I was, I was very um, strategic in the types of students that I wanted to hire. I didn't want to go to these Ivy League schools such as Queen's University. I wanted to go to schools that IBM did not look at, like York University, for instance. Students, schools where I knew there was a huge um, demographic of uh, students of color and not just so that I wasn't just focusing on black youths. I, I kind of made sure that I also hired somebody with a disability that I hired women of color that I hired, uh, try to find people of, from an indigenous, indigenous communities. So those were goals that I gave myself. And that was really an, an opportunity for me, not only to meet my goal of hiring 80 consultants, but to kind of go to, um, the executives there and say, look, I also hired from communities that you typically don't attract to, and I can build the brand within these communities. So that was my first initial break into how I got into the space. And wow. it was noticed. That's that, that's really amazing. You, you were specific and purposeful in in your own contribution to diversity and inclusion um, through through being uh, uh, an HR talent recruiter. Um how have you found in your experience that being that specific, um, being that purposeful um, has translated into having a more diverse workforce in some of the companies that you, you've been in? Because uh, what we see sometimes is that, you know, every, you know, a lot of companies talk about, yeah, you know, we're doing diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. uh, but are they really practicing it uh, by going out and saying like you did, right? I'm going to look mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of the target schools. Uh, you know, beyond the, 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 you know, the Ivy Leagues and go to somewhere where, you know, a specific demographic is primarily uh, is more likely to be and bring mm-hmm. out that talent into our firm. What have you seen in, in your experience uh, with that, in that regard? I think organizations um, want to do this. The issue is most of them don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times with, you know, and I've worked on Bay Street for quite some time, um, spe- specifically in the financial institutions. And we, in the financial institutions, we have the best strategies, right? When it comes to marketing our diversity um, commitment. The goal for an organization to really move the needle is to put people from these 
segments or these equity seeking groups into these roles that I'm in, right? What you see a lot of times with organizations that are successful is they have people in my, in roles of, of leadership or diversity and inclusion advocacy, people who have lived experience such as myself. Right. I wish that when I was trying to get into the industry, I knew somebody like me that can kind of give me that, that, that hand up. Mm. Um, and I think with a lot of the times with, or with the mistakes that organizations make when you, they, they put together these strategies and they put people in the role that don't have these lived experiences, mm. right? Either they don't come from a diverse community or don't have the understanding to what it really means to be from, from these communities. So it's really hard for them to execute because they're executing these strategies from, from, from a place that they only know best, right? Um, I, if you see the most successful um, organizations that are doing this and you really look at the people who are leading these initiatives, majority of the time, these are people who have these lived experiences. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's really fantastic and very clear. And, and you, you have to be purposeful even as a leader, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, putting the right people in the right positions uh, and setting them up to to succeed very well. That, that, that's great. Mm-hmm. So in in your in your uh, professional and and personal life, uh, what roadblocks have you have you experienced, and how were you able to sort of navigate and overcome them? I think in my in my professional life, um, one of the reoccurring theme that I saw, or challenges, or whatever you want to call it, that I saw especially when I was trying to climb up the ladder. I'm very ambitious and I'm very, but I'm very hardworking. I'm the type of person I put my head down and I'm very result oriented. But what I saw was a lot of the times, especially when I moved up in my career, there was a lot of people within the organization, colleagues, peers, who just did not see me. I don't even, I don't know what the word to do as an equal. Um, I look very young. People who know me know that I would know that I look very young and I'm, I have a very bubbly personality. I'm a very informal, extremely approachable. And that sometimes has worked to my disadvantage where I remember in one of the organization that I was in, um, I was in a management role and I called the meeting and, you know, I was, I was having a meeting with a lot of the executives within the organization and, um, I came to the meeting and, you know, I'm, you know, setting up my PowerPoint, typical, you know, like I was about 15 minutes early. I made sure the catering was there and so forth because I was dealing with a bunch of the executives. And one of the executives there, when they all got there, the meeting started at nine. When they all got there, one of the executives looked up and said to me, can you please let Hallie in so we can oh, get wow. the meeting started? And these are people that I have been communicating with via email for a very long time. But a lot of them, they flew in and I didn't know all of Like we haven't put a face to each other's name. Yeah. I've done the due diligence to go on LinkedIn and find these people and look them up because as a, as a, I, I've learned that I have to work twice as hard. Right. These, these executives, they didn't do that because they're the executives, right? They don't, they, they, they have this advantage that I don't have. So one of the executives, when he said, can you let Halling in? I remember I kind of was like, what should I do in this situation? Mm. You know, there's how you react really is so important. And that's what I've learned in my professional life. How you react to these micro aggressions or very overt biases or sometimes not so micro aggressions is 
really makes or breaks your next your next um, opportunity. I remember I closed the door, and those of you who know me, I have a very big smile, and I'm always <laughs> smiling. I smiled and I said, "Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Hallie. Let's do a round of introduction." And he turned. Beat red. Oh dear! Beat red. <laughs> he was just like so embarrassed. He became one of my biggest advocates, though. That's and amazing. And he he realized what he did, and he was so embarrassed. But I didn't I didn't make an issue of it. I said, "Don't worry about it. It's fine." Uh, um, and he was just like he was stuttering and all. And I, we did a round of introduction. I and I carried on and I carried on with the meeting. Hmm. He messaged me on and sent me an email afterward and apologized. And I didn't make an issue of it, but I knew what was I knew what was happening because those were the type of challenges that I've always faced: people undermining my authority, people undermining my competencies, people undermining my role, or just thinking that I was either the intern or I don't know the support staff or whatever they mm. in their head thought that I fit when when, when they looked at me. Mm. Um, the best way that I've overcome that is. Honestly, it's I. I think it has a lot to do with my upbringing and having seen a lot of the challenges and pushback and obstacles that my mother had in uh, in raising us. And she's never let allowed any of that to kind of deter her from her goal. Right? For me, I knew I belonged in that room. I did not need an invitation. I knew I belonged. I told myself I belonged, and. It doesn't matter what you think. You can think I'm the intern, but I'm I'm quickly gonna make sure that I introduce myself and let you know who I am. So I've never really had that, you know, be a setback. Wow, wow, that that's phenomenal. That's a that's a very powerful story. Just knowing that you belong, giving you that courage, and you know, knowing and listening, you know, paying attention to your background um, and your upbringing, using that as reinforcement to to give you the confidence to remain in spaces. Uh, that people ordinarily didn't think that you were part of that. That's really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. And and you 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 know you you've you've talked about your mom quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm guessing you know for my next question, you know, it's about people that are leaders and and people that have influenced your life and the lessons that you've learned from them. I assume one of them is your mother. Hundred uh, percent. Um, so yeah. So talk to us about those kind of leaders. Um, and and the influences that you've that you've gotten from them, and, and any of the lessons that you can share with us. Um, of course, my mother is somebody that I not only admire, but I'm always at awe. Um, to have come to this country with literally nothing, seven kids by herself, and to today be not only um, a homeowner, retired, have you know made sure that none of us got arrested or did anything bad, <laughs> having making sure that we have all gone to university. I'm always at odd how she did that. Um, she's extremely courageous. Um, and from her, that's where I've learned that I belong where I say I belong, right? Um, that confidence, that faith, that what is meant for me is mine, it comes from her. Um, other leaders outside of my mother that I look at is I look at Malcolm X. I think for me, Malcolm X is somebody that's extremely influential. And from him, I've learned that nothing is given to you, right? Like you have to fight for what you think you deserve. Um, 
And another leader of mine is, or somebody that I I think is amazing is Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. I've always looked at Muhammad Ali because of his confidence. A lot of people will say, you know, as a boxer, he's extremely cocky. Um, I think he's somebody that is bold and very confident and is not afraid to be in his own, own skin. Um, I generally gravitate towards people who have accepted themselves mm. and who are confident in their own skin and who are confident in who they are. To me, that is inspiring. And those are people that I usually look up to as leaders. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, so, so now you're at, at the city of Toronto, you know, you're within the, uh, uh, the diversity and inclusion portfolio again, as a senior HR consultant, um, how have you found that challenge? I guess uh, you're now looking at, you're, you're now within a, uh, the public mm-hmm. sector and trying to address diversity and inclusion um, needs within the public sector. What, what What's that experience like for you? Um, so far, so good. I think I left the, pub, the private sector specifically because I wanted to see the impact that my work has, specifically directly on the communities that I live in, right? right? This is an opportunity for me to really impact Toronto as a community from with the work that I do. The thing with the city of Toronto, um, unlike this public, uh, the private sector is we are held accountable by the public. So for instance, I'll give you an example. In my role, I am, I am leading the city's diversity talent um, strategy. I was tasked with not only coming up and developing that strategy, but also implementing it and making sure that it's, 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 it's a corporate um, or enterprise wide um, accepted. The good thing about that is it's easy to develop a strategy. It's easy for me to kind of, you know, say, hey, this is what my recommendation or best practice is. What is interesting in the public sector is that we're held accountable by offices that are built in place specifically because of public outcry or public um, accountability, such as the the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Office, for instance, that came from um, consultation with the community, with the Toronto black community that said we need an office that holds the city accountable on our behalf the indigenous affairs office um and these are offices that answer to the public and also come as my as my stakeholder are able to hold me accountable so that's the 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 difference um you know you're able to kind of see the work that you're doing um being adapted by these units and these um these offices within the city that are able to kind of roll it on and really see the impact that it directly has on the community. Yeah. And I think I like that, that, you know, being able to have more, a greater impact uh, within a community and seeing those results on a larger scale uh, Mm -hmm. than, you know, than just maybe, you know, the interests of the particular private sector organization that, that you're working with. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, you know, talking about, let's say, reflections and lessons um, that you've learned, you know, are there any, you know, big moments of failure uh, that you've had uh, in, in your life? And, and, and what did you learn from it? Um, so for me, like, I feel that in, in, on, a, on, a, on a micro level, there's always mistakes that I make. Um, one thing that stands out to me, I remember when I decided to get into HR. I wanted to go back into McMaster um, and do the postgraduate program in McMaster University. And I remember I didn't get in. And I was 
I, I was a hundred percent sure that I was going to get in um, because I graduated from math. I graduated with a decent average and I had a few years of work experience and I applied thinking like this isn't, you know, I got this in the bag and I didn't get in. And I remember at that time I was in a space in my life that I needed this to happen. Mm. Right. It was, it was, I was at a place in my life where I a wanted to get out of Hamilton because I felt boxed <laughs> in and B I knew I wouldn't grow without having, um, this under my belt. Right. And when I didn't get, I, that was, that to me felt like a huge failure. Um, and from that, I learned that, you know, I could have sulked. I could have, I could have cried and I could have been like, Oh my God, I tried. I didn't get in, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't. I right away that night when I, I, I went back and I applied to all these, these postgraduate um, degrees, the, the programs with for, for HR management. And I ended up still going to doing my postgraduate um, degree the same timeline, mm. that same September, because right away I got accepted by George Brown. So to me, that moment of failure, I think, has always stayed with me. Um, I won't call it a huge failure, but it, 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 the lesson from that stayed with me because it, it, it showed me that failure is redirection, right? I, yeah. was, I was meant to be redirected into this program at George Brown. And I'm so glad that I did because the HR program at AI and McMaster, they didn't have an opportunity for me to do a work placement. George Brown did. That was an opportunity for me to get my foot into, this, into the industry. So I always looked at that as a lesson of not only dust yourself off and try again, but failure is a reader. It's, it's, it's another route for you to get into where you need to go. And I don't look at failure for, as, as a no. I look at it as, again, like I said, redirection for, for me to get to, the, to get to my end goal. Great. Very good. Um, with all the work that you, you know, that you're doing in, in your career, and, and you, you mentioned that, you know, you're very passionate about the community. Uh, mm-hmm. What ways are you currently giving back uh, within the community? So I've been involved in giving back to the community, specifically in the Somali community for quite some, some time now. Um, this was something that I did on the side for, for a very long time. Um, my passion from that comes from when I first came to Toronto, it was um, I moved to Toronto about six, seven years ago. It was the first time that I saw a lot of people that looked like me, you know, coming <laughs> from Hamilton. I didn't, I didn't have that exposure. And, you know, having that exposure to the Somali community, I saw the narrative of the Somali community or Somali people in Toronto, and I didn't like it, right? It's not a reflection of what my community is as a people, because I always feel... The, the, the loudest noise is the negative, right? You don't see the, the Somali lawyers, the Somali doctors, the Somali professionals. What you hear about is the Somali um, gun violence. And if this was something that I was, I didn't, I was, I, I didn't want, I, I, I came in to kind of change that narrative and to kind of showcase to, you know, these, these youths within, within, within these high risk communities that there's another path. So I heavily got involved in in mentoring and in kind in, in putting in I did a lot of events to kind of showcase success that looks like you. Right. So I would go into these communities, specifically my target has always been young black boys, young Somali boys. Mm. Um those girls in our communities, like, I think it's the way we raise our 
our, our, our kids and in our community. Mothers, Somali mothers are, you know, they're so afraid of losing their young boys to, to, you know, to the system mm-hmm. that they hold on to them a little, a little bit. They kind of coddle them. And, and that, and that comes from a place of fear. Um, with the girls, it's, it's easy for the girl, if, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example of how my, the, the difference between how my brothers and my, myself were raised. Right. If I came and told my mom, um, whatever, like, let's say I had an issue. My mom would tell me, dust yourself off. You're strong. You got this, you know, like typical African, like, I don't want to see that, you know, and it was not, it wasn't like, oh, baby, the, my brothers come. My mom would want to do anything she can to protect them. Oh, wow. And I think this is an African thing. It's not a Somali thing. I think this is an African thing. It's like they want to protect them because it's, there's this fear that you have to provide this cushion. And in our community, that cushion is just so soft and the boys are not held accountable <laughs> that sometimes they just, and I, there's all these other dynamics, but these are young, bright men. Um, they're not broken. They're just in a situation that is that they don't see success that looks like them. Mm. What they see is a is 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 lack of opportunities. What they see is obstacle after obstacles. And I I, I and I got involved with these with the community work as a way to showcase to them people that look like them, that have the same experiences, that have the same upbringing, that have the same challenges, but has have made. Right. Because a lot of the times with the young black, with Somali boys, what you see is, oh, I can't do that. Mm. Oh, I can't. Like, I remember when I was giving back to, you know, what I was doing, one mentorship program. um, And I was um, talking to young Somali boys in the Dixon area. And, you know, these are young boys are directly involved in gun violence, whether they've lost somebody or they've been, you know, part of that situation. And born here by the way not like immigrants these right. are young boys that were born here and i was shocked that none of them came to downtown toronto they're born in toronto but i've never been to downtown toronto wow and it was to me that was one of the an, an eye-opening situation and i remember i took them i rem- i took them to the first the first canadian place where i worked and i said i want to show you where i work and it was just like they were just like they let, and I remember one guy said, they let black people up in here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just, and I, to me, that's what drives me, right? Showcasing people like you, people that look like them, that were let into these spaces, yeah. right? And, and kind of showing them success that looks like them and showing them Somali doctors, black doctors or lawyers or engineers or corporate um, professionals. And, it has had an impact and it's, it's beautiful to see um, when, when, you, when, when you're mentoring these young boys for them to tell you, I never thought that I could do it because I've always, you know, I hear these things like you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, but I'm always hearing it from white people. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You don't know what I have been through. Right. It's easy for you to say I can do it. But when they hear it from people who have the same background, it really has an impact. And I encourage young professionals my, to, to, to go back into their communities and, and showcase them their, their success and success of, of black success to these, to these young people because there is that need for them to see people that look like them. Very, very powerful stuff. Very inspiring and and. Really, really glad that you're doing this within the community because, yes, we do need a lot more 
uh, a lot more visibility uh, to young mm-hmm. folks so that they, they have uh, a path to look forward to. Um, Absolutely. So my last question uh, for you is, um, you know, what's your leadership philosophy like? Um, similar to yours, Aziz, I think I told you this before, to lead with compassion, right? Um, to me, I feel that in a, when you're in a leadership role, whether that's in a you know, professional capacity, whether you're managing people or to be, you know, a indirect leader, you have such an impact on the people that look up to you or that you're leading, right? How you treat them and is, is so, um, it really can make and break a person. And I've learned this through the leaders that I've had in my life, right? The ones that are compassionate, the ones that lead with compassions are always the ones that helped me grow. So to me, my philosophy is always lead with compassion because you, when you're positively positively impacting other people or people that you're leading, you can you can literally see the contributions that you know those people make or how they flourish. Rather than to lead from a place of fear, I think leading from compassion for me is is, is my philosophy. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks, thanks a lot for for these answers. Um, before we wrap up, uh, we're going to do um, a little. Uh, rapid fire session. Uh, So I'm going to ask you um, five questions and, you know, just give me your best answers as quickly as possible. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first one, uh, what book are you currently reading right now? Um, How to talk to strangers, Malcolm Gladwell. Brilliant. Um, And what is your favorite productivity tool or, or hack? Um, I really don't have one. I think for me, it's, um, I try to like write down a list, like writing down a list. It's a simple, it's a simple hack, but I don't think it's something that is. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. It's simple, easy to execute. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what would you say is your favorite place to escape to? Um, my bed. <laughs> I'm <was> sleeping. <laughs> Excellent. And who would you say is your biggest cheerleader or supporter? Absolutely my mother. Awesome. Awesome. And if money or resources were not an issue, what would you do? Um, I would be in Africa and giving back directly to the, to, the, to the motherland. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Hallie, for joining us today. We, I, I really loved your, your story today. And, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that are in similar situations <laughs> and would be uh, you know, significantly inspired by what you've done, what you've accomplished up to this point. And, you know, continue to do what you do in the community. You're, you're clearly someone that embodies what this show is about, which is people that are made to lead, that are actually leading. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you for having me, Aziz. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. Mm-hmm.